Well, thank you to the team for uh, that song, setting up the message this morning. As Kevin mentioned, we're moving forward in our series, Life at 2%, where we've been talking about the need to recharge. Because so many of us start our days burned out, worn out, and ready to tap out. And for some of us, that's before we even get out of bed. Any of you feel that, that tension? And the start of a new year is always a natural time for us to evaluate where we've been living our lives in low power mode and then to recharge some essential areas. And so that's what we've been talking about for the last three weeks. We've talked about things like time and rest and finances. And this morning, we're going to continue by talking about worry. And I think that this is important because if we're not intentional about this, worry can become the default setting for the way we respond to the circumstances of life. Now, here's the reality. On some level, we all feel the pull toward worry. And maybe for you, this isn't a big deal in your life. You wouldn't categorize yourself as a worrier. But certainly there are things that happen or things that might happen or certain seasons of life that can cause us, for a time, to lean toward worry. But then there are others who deal with this more consistently, maybe even on a daily basis. And some of you are thinking right now, he's talking to me. I'm a worrier. And if that's you, I want you to know you're not alone. In fact, some studies suggest that as as much as 38% of the U.S. population struggles with worry on a daily basis. That's over a third of us giving in to worry every single day. And maybe you wish that wasn't true of you. You don't like that about yourself. But if you were being honest, you find yourself in that percentage there. And if that's you, I just want you to know, I am so glad that you're here today. I have been praying for you that the things we're going to talk about today will help you to, to find some new ways to fight for freedom from worry. Now, there's a third group of people that I also want to recognize before we move forward. Because even though more than a third of us worry on a daily basis, there's a much smaller percentage of the U.S. population who struggle with what's known as generalized anxiety disorder. This affects anywhere from 2 to 5% of the U.S. population. And if that's you, if you struggle with overwhelming, even crippling clinical anxiety, I want you to know today that my goal is not to add to your burden by telling you all of the things you're doing wrong. And if you would just change some patterns in your life or or change the way you think or uh, have more faith that you wouldn't struggle with anxiety. I want you to know that I realize that GAD is a whole different thing than what we're talking about today. It's not simply a choice you're making. There's something deeper going on. But I also want you to know that I have seen God's word used effectively in the battle against anxiety. And while I don't struggle with this myself, the people who are close to me who do have found relief in the battle by doing the things we're going to discover today. And that's what I've been praying for you, that uh, through this teaching, you would find relief in the battle. So one last thing before we get going, as we look at some different passages today, you're going to see both the word worry and the word anxiety on the screen. I want you to know that in every passage we'll look at today, the Greek word that those are are pulled from is exactly the same. Some passages translate it worry, some passages translate it anxiety, but because I've made a distinction here between the two, 
I want you to recognize that the Bible does not. What we're talking about this morning is worry, and that's what these passages are pointing towards. Now, one of the things that I love about God's word is that it's not just a list of what not to do. That's how a lot of people view the Bible, that it's just a a restrictive book. Don't do this and don't do that. And certainly the Bible does show us the wrong thing. But it also shows us the right thing. And very often it shows us in great detail how we should do the things that we should do. And that's what we're going to see today. So if you have held a view that the Bible is vague at best or unhelpful at worst, uh, I hope to challenge that view today. As we look at three different passages by three different authors who are all in agreement about the wrong thing, the right thing, and very specifically how to do it, okay? So let's start in Matthew chapter 6. If you brought your Bible uh, open there, if you didn't bring a Bible, there are some under the seats around you. If you don't own a Bible, I'd like for you to keep one of those as your own. It's our gift to you. But Matthew chapter 6 is part of Jesus' teaching that we call the Sermon on the Mount. And here's what Jesus says, starting in verse 25. He says, Therefore I tell you, do not worry about your life. And so Jesus wastes no time getting to the point, does he? I love that about him. So often he cuts straight to the heart of the issue. He does it here as well. I tell you, do not worry about your life. This is the command to followers of Jesus. If you're taking notes, I want you to write it down. And what we're going to see next is that Jesus is going to take this overarching command and he's going to break it down into some bite-sized pieces for his audience. But I want you to understand, this is not an exhaustive list that he's about to give. These are just some examples. So the command is, do not worry about your life. But Jesus illustrates the command by saying, don't worry about what you will eat. Don't worry about what you will drink or about your body or what you will wear. Is life not more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Now listen to this next line, because Jesus is going to begin explaining to us why this is important. In verse 27, he says, Can any one of you, by worrying, add a single day to your life? Can any of us, by worrying, add a single day to our lives? Let me say it a different way. What good is it to worry? You know what worry fixes? Nothing. You know what worry gains you? Nothing. And that's not new information, is it? I didn't just blow your minds with that little nugget of truth, did I? Because cognitively, we already know this to be true, and yet somehow there's a disconnect between what we know to be true in our heads and then the way we respond in our hearts. And Jesus is simply reminding us and pointing to the plain truth that whatever the problem is, worry is not the solution. It gains us nothing. It fixes nothing. Now jump down to verse 31 where Jesus will give one more reason not to worry. He says, so don't worry saying, what shall we eat or what shall we drink or what shall we wear? For the pagans run after all these things and your heavenly father knows that you need them. So Jesus makes a distinction here between those who follow him and those who don't. And he refers to those who don't as pagans. And we hear that word, and we cringe a little bit, don't we? That doesn't seem very kind. It doesn't seem very loving. There's kind of a negative connotation to it, you know? 
Like, you pagans, right? We kind of hear it with some teeth to it, don't we? But understand that Jesus' intent isn't to be unloving or unkind. He's simply saying, my ways are different than the ways of the world. And those who are in Christ should act differently than those who are not. The way of the world is worry. Jesus says that's what the pagans do. They run themselves ragged trying to attain this and secure that, and it's never enough because there's always something else to worry about. Jesus says, I don't want my followers to live that way. I want you to recognize that you have a heavenly father who already knows what you need and will graciously provide it for you. So Jesus says, don't worry about your life. It gains you nothing. It fixes nothing. And it's not how my followers are to live. Now, I mentioned that God's word doesn't just tell us the wrong thing, but it also points us toward the right thing. And to see that, I want to turn to 1 Peter chapter 5. And this is one of my go-to passages in Scripture. And so uh, if you've got your Bible with you, you might want to dog ear this page, or if you've got one of those fancy red ribbons, maybe lay it right down in the crease here at 1 Peter chapter 5. Because while this isn't a long passage It has the power to completely change how we think about worry. And while you may not have anything to worry about right now, I'm just telling you, the day is coming when you are going to need the truth of 1 Peter chapter 5. Here's what Peter says, starting in verse 6. He says, Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. And Peter begins with a word here that is so essential in the battle against worry. And it's not a fill-in on your notes page, but I want you to write it down anyway. It's the word humble. Peter says, humble yourselves. And if you read 1 Peter 5 in its entirety, you'll find that much of it is about the battle between pride and humility in the believer's life. And so we're just pulling out one small nugget from that bigger context here. But understand that humility is key to effectively battling worry. And that may seem counterintuitive to us because oftentimes worry itself can feel like humility. And I don't want to rush past that statement. Worry itself can feel like humility. Worry often masquerades as humility. When the stress of life begins to build and uncertainty creeps in, we feel humbled by that, don't we? We know that there are certain things that we can't handle, certain things that we're not equipped for, and that's a humbling feeling. When there's nothing in front of us except for defeat, that feels humbling, doesn't it? But understand that Peter isn't talking about a feeling. He's talking about a decision. Because when things get stressful or uncertain, we've got a choice to make. And we can either take those matters into our own hands and we can begin to think through all the ways it might play out. And we can plan and say, if it goes this way, I'm going to do this. If it goes that way, I can do that. And we can think about all of those different ways that we're not really equipped to move forward, but we're going to push forward in our own strength anyway. Or we can release our grip. We can give that over to God and let him lift us up in due time. And what Peter points out in this passage is that the tightening of our grip, that that is an act of pride and it needs to be broken in us. But the releasing of these things, that that's an act of true humility and it begins to break the cycle of worry in our lives. So here's what Peter says to do very plainly in verse 7. He says, cast all your anxiety on God because he cares for you. That's what true humility looks like. 
in dealing with worry. So write this down. Don't worry about your life. Instead, cast all your anxiety on God. We are not to keep any of it. Don't look at your situation and think, well, that, this part's not that bad over here. I can probably handle this. God, you take the, the bigger thing, but I, I'll, I'll do this part over here. I can handle it. No, the command is to cast all your anxiety on God. And it's the entirety of it out of my hands and into his I don't know about you, I I think that one of the marks of getting older for me is that I don't listen to songs on the radio anymore, now I listen to people talking on the radio, and so I find myself tuning in to moody radio, you know, just pastors and and talk programs and, and whatever. I heard a pastor on Moody a while back, and he was teaching on this passage, and uh, he said that when he's praying about a situation that might cause his heart to worry, that this is what he does. He, he follows the advice of this passage, the command of this passage. He goes to the Lord in prayer. He casts all of his anxiety on God. But then I thought this was interesting. He said, then he takes a break and he steps away from prayer for a while to just evaluate and to see if there's any sense of worry or anxiety still in his heart. And if he senses that there's any of it still in there, he goes right back to God in prayer. And he repeats the process, casting those anxieties, taking a break, evaluating. And he does that until all of his anxiety is gone. All of it out of his hands and into the hands of God. And it got me to thinking, What if we took all of the time that we normally use to evaluate and plan and prepare and run through all of the scenarios in our mind, because we all do that, right? I do that. What if we took that time and instead we were faithful to casting all our anxiety on God? We were faithful to do what this pastor did in in taking the time just to, to, to sense whether there's any of it left and casting it on God until the entirety was out of our hands and into his. Do you sense what a difference that could make? Do you sense what an advantage we would have in using our time to do that instead of the planning and the preparing and the thinking through? Jesus said, don't worry about your life. And Peter said, cast all your anxiety on God. Now, one more passage to really help us understand very specifically how to do this. I want to go to Philippians chapter 4. And this is the Apostle Paul writing to the church at Philippi. And you're going to see that he is very much in agreement with Jesus and Peter on this. But before we get into it, I want to offer a quick word of caution. Because within this passage is a verse that you're going to be very familiar with. Many of you will be very familiar with Philippians 4, 7. It's what I call a Hallmark card verse. And I don't mean any disrespect by that. By that. It's just true. There are certain passages of Scripture that seem to continually show up on encouraging cards and, and uh, calendars and whatever. And this happens to be one of them. Let me show you an example of what I mean by that. This is a card that, uh, that you may send to someone, and it just simply says, the peace of God which surpasses all understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 7. How many of you have heard that verse before? Maybe even gotten a card or, or sent a card like that. Like I said, we're, we're familiar with this. Let me show you another one. If you prefer the King James Version, the peace of God which passeth all understanding shall keep your hearts and your minds through Christ Jesus, Philippians 4, 7. And you've got this placid lake and the blue skies and the trees are in bloom. It's clearly Indiana in the wintertime. 
But uh, here's the deal. Here, here's the problem that I have with this. It's not that I don't like getting cards with birds and butterflies and ponds on them. It's that that's not what Philippians 4, 7 says. This is what Philippians 4, 7 says. And the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Do you see the difference? It's that little word right at the beginning, and. It's the Greek word chi, and it's used over 9,000 times in the New Testament, always to connect one thought or idea to another. And you're thinking, man, he must have been desperate for sermon content to bring that up, right? But I'm going to tell you, this is a really big deal. Because what happens is when you send that card, the peace of God, which transcends all understanding, regard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. You send that to somebody who's experiencing some very real stress, some very real circumstance in their life. And they get that card and they read that and they, they think, not my heart. Not my mind. I don't feel that at all. I don't feel peace at all. Maybe, maybe God doesn't love me. Maybe God doesn't see what's going on. Maybe he doesn't care. Maybe I'm not really a Christian. All the while, not recognizing that Philippians 4, 7 is tied to a process that begins all the way back in verse 4. It doesn't stand alone. It was not intended to. So let's go back and see what we might be missing. Beginning in Philippians 4, 4, here's what Paul says. Rejoice in the Lord always. Well, say it again, rejoice. And anytime you read something repeated in the Bible like that, it's meant to give it great emphasis. This is super important. Paul wants us to rejoice. Now, how many of you know that it's really hard to worry and rejoice at the same time? Anybody here know that to be true? Some of you felt that tension even as you came in the doors this morning. You came in with something heavy on your heart, heavy on your mind. The band began playing, and there was something inside of you that, that wanted to cry out to God, but you've got this other thing going on, and it's a battle, isn't it? There's a tension there. It's really hard to worry and to rejoice at the same time. And I think that's why Paul leads off with the command to rejoice. Write it down. Here's how. Rejoice. In the battle against worry, we begin with rejoicing. And what does that look like? What does it mean to rejoice? Well, it's simply praising God for all of his goodness. Think of the ways that he has come through for you in the past and tell him about it. Recount all of his goodness. If you can't think of anything to, to, to say to him, maybe write some of these down. He called us out of darkness and into light, 1 Peter 2. He forgave the guilt of our sin, Psalm 32. He did it with the blood of his own son, Hebrews 9. He is coming again, 1 Thessalonians 4, and we will spend eternity with him in heaven, Revelation 21. If you are in Christ, these are just a few of the things that you have to rejoice about. And Paul shows us here that casting our anxiety on God, it begins with rejoicing. But then he says this in verse 5. He says, let your gentleness be evident to all. The Lord is near. And that word gentleness, it comes from the Greek word epikaios. And epikaios sometimes is, is translated as gentle, but it can also mean moderate. It can mean patient or reasonable. In fact, the ESV translate the passage, translates the passage this way. It says, let your reasonableness be known 
to everyone. And I think that that is a really helpful translation because it causes us not to just put all of our focus on the current circumstance. It causes us to look at the bigger picture and to recognize that there is more going on here. And we can reason that if God is for us, who can stand against us? Like this situation, it feels so overwhelming, but the bigger picture, the reasoning If God is for us, who can stand against us? And so Paul says, be reasonable. Write that down. Be reasonable. The Lord is near. Remember, Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6 that our heavenly Father knows what we need. Don't forget, he's in control. He sees you. He knows what you need. He has the power to provide it. So be reasonable. And then Paul says this in verse 6. He says, do not be anxious about anything, but in every situation, by prayer and petition and with thanksgiving, present your requests to God. So we see that Paul agrees with everything that we've already seen from Jesus and from Peter. He says, don't be anxious. Don't, don't worry about anything. We've seen that. He says, but instead, pray, petition God. That's the casting our anxieties part. We've looked at that. But then he adds this detail. He says, with thanksgiving. We are to present these requests with thanksgiving. Paul wants us to be thankful. Write it down. There should be a thankful spirit to our prayers and our petitions. Thank him for his goodness. Thank him for his provision. Don't be so overcome by the current situation that you forget all that there is to be thankful for. It's a key part of the process of overcoming worry. And then at the end of verse 6, he says, present your requests to God. And so after you've done everything else, rejoice, be reasonable, be thankful, then present your requests to God. Write it down. And it's not that there won't be moments when something is going down right now and we just need to get to it, get at it, and beg God to intervene. He is big enough for those kinds of prayers. There is grace for that. I'm not saying you can't do that in a moment of of just desperate need. But understand that our regular pattern of prayer should not be just to jump right to the asking. This is one of the things that I've chosen to battle against as a parent. And if you're a parent in this room, you know we have to choose our battles, don't we? Well, this is one that I battle against. Uh, when my kids' first words to me in the morning are, hey, hey, dad, can I do this? Can I do that? Can I, can I eat this? Can I have that? Can I go there? Can I do that? Can I, can I, can I, can I, can I? That is not okay with me. And a lot of times I'll simply reply, you know what? I'm doing great. Thank you for asking. How are you? Right? And that's just my passive-aggressive way of parenting my kids. I'm not suggesting that you should do the same, but it's frustrating, isn't it? Like, I'm a real person. I desire a relationship with my kids. I'm not just the genie who grants all their wishes or the Uber driver who gets them where they want to go. I'm their dad. I want to know how they're doing. I hope they want to know how I'm doing. That's what a relationship is. And while I am not suggesting that God gets frustrated with our requests, I do want us to remember that this is a relationship. God wants to hear your request, but he also wants to hear your rejoicing. He also wants to see your reasonableness. He wants to hear your thankfulness. And then when we've done all of that, that we would lay our requests at his his feet. Don't skip all of the, the first and jump straight to the asking. But after you've done everything else, present your requests to God. And then that little verse, or that little word in verse 7, chi, and, meaning when all of this has taken place, the peace of God, 
which transcends all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. When you have made this the pattern of your life, saying no to worry, responding in humility, and following the pattern that Paul gives us here, then the peace of God that goes beyond understanding will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. And it's not that we won't experience the troubles of this life. It's not that we won't still feel that, that very uh, overwhelming feeling, perhaps. But it's that people will look at us in the midst of that, and they will think, how, how is it that you still have peace with that going on? How is it that you still experience joy, even in the midst of sadness? That's what it means to have the peace that goes beyond understanding. Because people won't understand And sometimes we don't even understand how there can be peace in the midst of the trials of this life. Now, I want to end this morning with three truths that I believe will help you to recharge your peace. But first, I want to ask you a question. How many of you get to this point of the sermon and you hear the pastor say, I've got three points and you are thinking, my goodness, when is this going to end? Anyone willing to admit they felt that? I felt it. We've all felt it. I want you to look at someone next to you right now. Look them in the eye. Stop looking at me and look at someone next to you right now. I'm looking at you, Isaac. That's right. Look at someone next to you and tell them, don't worry about it. It's going to be fine. It's not your fault. It's going to be okay. We're almost done. Okay? Three truths to recharge your peace. Here we go. First truth is this. God values you. He values you. We saw this in the examples that Jesus gave us in Matthew chapter 6. He begins talking about the birds of the air, how they neither plant nor reap nor store in barns, and yet God provides for them. And then he talks about the lilies of the field, how they neither labor nor spin, and yet even Solomon in all of his splendor was never dressed with that kind of beauty. And Jesus said, if God cares that much about birds and grass... Don't you know that he cares so much more about you? Don't you know that you are so much more valuable to him than they? God values you. And then Peter builds on that same foundation when he says that we can cast our anxiety on God because he cares for us. Write it down. God cares for you. And have you ever stopped to consider that with an estimated 7.6 billion people on planet Earth, and let's just be honest, that's a number... We can't even get our heads around. That is a lot of people. 7.6 billion people on planet Earth. God knows your name. He knows your story. He knows your circumstance. He knows your future. He knows you better than you know yourself. And if you have ever thought that God is too busy to be bothered with your problems, I just want you to recognize that is not a biblical view of God. Because here he clearly invites us to cast our anxieties on him because he cares for us. And finally, Paul reminds us that in the battle against worry, God is near. Write it down. God is near. He is not far off. He has not left us to figure this out on our own. He is near. And listen, if you don't believe that, then I can see why your default setting would be to worry. Because listen, if God's not real, or if he's just uncaring, or if he just doesn't like you, like I get it. What what hope do you have if those things are true? But here's the thing. If those things are true about the God you know, then understand we're not talking about the same God. Because the God of the Bible did everything necessary to free us from a life of worry. He valued us so much 
that he sent his one and only son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish but have everlasting life. He cared for us so much that even while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he is near us. He didn't leave us to figure this out on our own. He is near. In fact, he gave us the gift of his Holy Spirit. And if you are in Christ, his Holy Spirit is in you, guiding you and convicting you of sin and righteousness and judgment and reminding us that a day is coming when all of this world's trouble and worry are coming to an end, when Jesus Christ is revealed. And when you realize that these things are true, well, now you can kiss worry goodbye. And now you can know the peace that goes beyond understanding. When my family was living in Michigan, there was a group of six or seven boys who, for whatever reason, chose to target my youngest daughter, Jayla. And Sunday after Sunday, we we would come home from church and Jayla would just be in a pile and she would tell us about how these boys had teased her and mocked her and made fun of her and and she just would come home completely defeated and deflated. And we knew these boys' parents and so we would go and talk to them about what had happened and they'd talk to their boys and they'd get a completely different story that it was actually all Jayla's fault and so nothing was ever done. And so on and on this pattern went, and we never actually saw it happen that we could address it on our own until one Saturday, I was working outside in the yard, and for whatever reason, these boys were at the church. And Jayla went over to the church to see what was going on, and per usual, she came home in tears. And she explained to me how it happened again, and they were making fun of her, and they were mocking her, and she was just completely broken and defeated. And I thought to myself, this ends today. And so I told Jayla, we're going back over to the church, and I want you to invite those boys to come over and play. And I'm going to tuck in beside the door where they can't see me, but I can hear what's going on because I I need to hear this for myself. And so that's what we did. We walked back over to the church, and I tucked in tight to the door where those boys couldn't see me, and Jayla stepped into the doorway and invited these boys to play. And as soon as she did, I heard it for the first time as those boys began to mock my daughter and to tease her for the way she talked and to dress her down. And while that was happening, I stepped into the doorway and I said, hey! And I kid you not, one of those boys dove into an open closet and shut the door behind him. As I very kindly and very gently explained to those little punks, That the next time my daughter comes home crying, you can know I'm on my way. I'm coming to find you. And you're going to answer to me. And I have to tell you, we really didn't have any trouble with those boys going forward. But I tell you that story this morning because of what happened next. As Jayla and I walked home, she was just beaming, smiling ear to ear. And we walked in the house and Beth Ann was in the kitchen and Jayla gave her a big hug and she said, my dad is awesome. My dad is awesome. See, Jayla had experienced the love of her father. She had experienced the fact that I value her, I care about her, and I am near to her. And Genesis Church, I am here this morning to tell you that if you are in Christ, your dad is awesome. 
You have a heavenly father who is awesome. He sees you. He cares about you. He values you. He is near to you. He is your protector and your provider. And he has given us everything we need for life and godliness. And so if you are recognizing this morning a pattern of surrendering to worry in your life, I just want to challenge you to be faithful to the words of Jesus. Don't worry about your life. Be faithful to the words of Peter. Cast all your anxiety on God. And be faithful to the words of Paul. Rejoice. Be reasonable. Be thankful. Present your request to God. Because this is how you overcome worry in your life. Would you commit to that even today? Even today, if worry tries to to poke out its ugly head, would you approach it biblically and humbly? And in doing so, recharge your peace. One last thing. If you've never surrendered your life to Christ, I want you to know that these promises I've talked about this morning are exclusive to those who are in Christ. But the good news is that the invitation to come to Christ is anything but exclusive. In fact, it's extremely inclusive. You can accept that invitation today. You can know the love of Jesus. You can know his hope and his peace. And we would love to talk with you more about what a relationship with Christ looks like. I'll be hanging out up front after the service. Don't leave. Don't leave if you're feeling that pull on your heart today. But right now, I just want to pray for those here who are ready to think and act differently about this topic of worry. I want to invite you to bow your heads with me. And I want to ask you uh, if we could do something just a little bit different without anybody looking around. If you came in here this morning with something heavy on your heart, heavy on your mind, something that is pulling your heart toward worry, would you just put your hand in the air right now so that I can see who you are and where you are? I want to pray very specifically for you this morning. And I see those hands. Let me pray for you. Father God, we thank you once again. Uh, for the guidance and the truth of your word. Lord, you tell us in your word, Jesus said that in this world we would have trouble, but that we could take heart because you have overcome the world. And Lord, the reality is every hand that was just raised and probably some that weren't represent some uh, expression of the trouble that Jesus talked about, the stress of life, the circumstances of life. Father, sometimes it is crushing and overwhelming. And I pray for my brothers and sisters here this morning who are right in the middle of it. Father, I pray that, uh, that as we have looked at your word, that perhaps something new has come to light, some new way, some biblical way, Father, to uh, battle against worry in our lives. And I pray, Lord, that as we faithfully follow the direction you give us in your word, Lord, that we would experience the peace that goes beyond understanding. Lord, that in the middle of our trials and our troubles, that people would look at us and say, something's different. Something's different about the way that they mourn. Something's different about the way that they work through trouble and hardship. Lord, again, not that that you have promised, promised trouble won't come, but you've promised us peace in the midst of it. Lord, I pray that for my brothers and sisters here today. We love you. Father, we still look forward to the day that Jesus is coming again and all of the trouble of this world comes to an end. And we say, come, Lord Jesus. We are ready when you are. But until that day, we want to be faithful and we want want to be fruitful for you. And so we pray this all in Jesus' name.